So anyway, so let's get started. So I'm way over time now, so we'll probably get out of here for sure by, uh, yeah, 11.30. <laughs> oh, no. So we're going to be reading in the book of Colossians, and so I want you to think about it a little bit different, okay? Just even when you're reading the Bible in general, because a lot of times, you know, it's like, okay, this letter is written to the Colossians. And so I want you to change your mindset that you're not reading this like you're reading somebody else's mail, okay? It's not like you're reading a letter that just for these other people, okay? Uh, the Bible has been preserved the, the way we know it right here. It's been totally preserved. There's no other book like this that's been preserved, and it really they can't minor little changes here and there over thousands of years, and that was for a reason. It's so that when you would read this letter to the Colossian church, it could just as well have been to Calvary Chapel Lakeside. But even more important, it's to the people that are in the church, because that is the church, right? Okay. So as we go through this, I want you to think about it like that. Okay, God is writing this letter to me. All right? This letter is to me. And a lot of times when you're reading the Bible, if the places where it says uh, you or there's the, you know, the personal pronouns, you, you can just go ahead and just plug your name right in there. Okay? Just plug your name in there, and, and God will be speaking specifically to you. So, uh, so yeah, wow, uh, this is bad. <clears throat> you know, you got to get this all timed out so we can get everybody out of here in time. I don't know if it's going to happen. But, so the, the book of Colossians actually started on this uh, uh, two years ago. So we're a little behind already. But uh, he, Paul actually uh, wrote uh, the book because there was a problem in the church there. There was people that were saying, basically, Jesus isn't God. They're saying he was uh, sort of somewhere in between God and the angels, but he wasn't actually God. And so there's modern-day people that feel the exact same way right now. There's other religions around us. So... What he's writing about actually applies to us today, too, because as much as everything changes, everything stays the same, really. So, uh, so they, these guys were called Gnostics. Uh, uh, they, they basically said spirit is good and matter is evil, and since Jesus, the man, was uh, matter, he was evil, so he couldn't be God. And so it was just craziness going on in that church. So uh, we're going to start at uh, chapter 1, verse 9. And, uh, but you'll see when we start, you kind of got to understand what's went on through verses 1 through 8. And so what's going on in 1 through 8 uh, is that Paul would, had given thanks to this Colossian church about three main things, their faith, their uh, love, and their hope. Okay, their faith in Jesus. He was thanking them for this. So it's kind of like it shows up as maybe some sort of a model characteristics or attributes for any church. Uh, we're talking about this on Monday night because he does the same thing with the, with the Thessalonian church. Uh, so their faith in Jesus, their love for the fellow believers, okay? So he's thanking them for this and their hope of heaven. And their hope of heaven was based on the gospel, uh, 
and the, the grace of God, okay? So, with that, let's pray, and we'll start. Father, we just come to you today, and uh, Lord, we pray for your Holy Spirit to just uh, fill this place, and Lord, I pray that if there's any walls right now, Lord, that you would break down those walls, and that uh, you would be glorified here today. Just pray this in Jesus' name. Okay, so we're gonna, I'm just going to read through the whole shebang, and then we'll go back through it, and we'll kind of go uh, verse by verse from there. So starting at verse 9, it says, For this reason we also, since the day we heard of it, did not cease to pray for you. Okay, they, they had heard about the, their faith, love, and hope, right? That's what we just talked about. They had heard about so they're, he's praying for them. And he says, and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power, for all patience and long suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. I'm at 15 now. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven, that are in heaven and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or power. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things consist. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in all the fullness should dwell, and, and by him to reconcile all things to himself. By him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross, And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless above reproach in his sight. If if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, which I, Paul, became a minister. So let's go back to 9. It says, <clears throat> okay, remember the whole idea is he's got these problems there. And uh, so the main focus that he's going after is that there's people saying that Jesus isn't God. So the first thing he does in verses uh, 9 through 14 is he, he prays for uh, the church. He, <clears throat> he says, for this reason also... Since the day we heard of it, we did not cease to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So he goes right to the topic of knowledge. Okay, but what he focuses on, he says, is that he wants to focus on the, the knowledge of God's will. Okay, because they had all these different angels that they were lifting up and everything. And so I guess... And then he kind of answers the question. It's a, it's a big, long run on sentence here, to be honest with you. But he kind of answers the question of why should we focus 
on God's will. And so in verse 10, it goes into that. So I'm going to go back to 9, because 9 kind of runs right into 10. I'm just going to read a little piece of, of 10, and then we'll talk about that. He says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, uh, do not cease to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord. So what he's saying is is that immediately he's taking this uh, like intellectual, philosophical topic and putting it down where the rubber meets the road. Because we had all these people that are expounding, they knew this and this guy knew that. And Paul's saying, no, that you be filled with the knowledge of his will, right? And what's the reason for it? That you may walk worthy of the Lord. He says here, walk worthy of the Lord. Just mainly just live a life that would bring uh, glory to the Lord. So let's, let's read 10 again and we'll get the next part. It says, that you may walk worthy of the Lord. And then it says, fully pleasing him. And I think if we're all honest with ourselves, if we're believers, we know the stuff that would please God. Whether or not we act on that or not, that's another thing. But I think it's kind of baked in. It's kind of baked in. We know the stuff that God would want us to do. He, but but uh, based on what Paul has written in the letters, uh, <clears throat> I think there's some definite things that we know already that that would please God. Their faith in Jesus obviously pleases God, and we're going to talk a little bit about that why a little bit later. It says their love of their fellow believers. God likes that. You know, when you're taking care of each other, God likes that. It's a good thing. He says, and their hope of heaven, which is based on, you know, the grace of God and the truth of the gospel. So all those things are things that would please God. And I think just the mere knowledge of God's will, the fact that you would know that, I think that would please God too. I think it would probably please him better if you would do something with it. And, and Paul, amazingly enough, the very next thing he talks about is doing something with it. He says, <clears throat> that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work. So if you think about being fruitful, you know, you drop the seed in the ground, it germinates, it grows up, makes flowers, makes fruit, and the fruit drops another seed in the ground, it germinates, grows up, makes flowers, makes fruit. You get the idea. Okay? So that's what he's saying here, that, that if you walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work. So that indicates that the work that you're doing probably should... Uh, there should be other good work that would stem out from that, okay? So, so the last one's kind of interesting because let's read verse 10 again. We'll get the whole thing this time. That you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So that's kind of interesting. He's got all the stuff listed in there uh, of walking worthy. And then the last one is, Increasing in the knowledge of God. And if you stop and think about it, what that really means is, is that uh, when we do that, we're going to increase our walk worthy of the Lord, right? We're going to increase in how to please him. All right? We're going to increase in our fruitfulness. So it's a kind of thing that feeds back on itself. It's kind of a, it's totally a God thing. Uh, it says, uh, 
the prayer for increased knowledge of God also includes in verse 11, he says that we would be strengthened with all might uh, according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy. So the things we want to consider, two things really in verse 11, is the first part is strengthened with all might according to his glorious power. power. So what does that mean? Um, I think the power that Paul's talking about here is actually God's grace. In Titus, uh, I don't know if we talked about this one or not, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Yeah, in Titus chapter 2, this is kind of a a place that, I don't know, I think every time I talk about something, I always keep coming back to this verse. I know Home Fellowship, they've uh, heard it a million times. I'll just read it to you. It says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. So let's really read what that verse says. It says, For the grace of God that brings salvation. We all know we're saved by grace, right? But he's saying, has appeared to all men. And what, he's still talking about that same saving grace, right? He's saying that that same grace is going to teach us that, okay? So God's grace is going to teach us denying ungodliness and worldly lust that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. And if you, if you really take that thought, God's going to give you the power now, Right? Because that's what grace is going to teach us. If you go take that back, let's just go, we're going to zip back real quick and say, here, that you may walk worthy of the Lord. Okay? So God's going to give you the grace to do that. I mean, he's going to give you the power. The second part of this is really amazing. So it says, strengthens with all might according to his glorious power, which is his grace. For all patience and long suffering with joy. So, what he's saying is that God's grace can teach us patience and long suffering or endurance. Other endurance is probably another word that fits in there that we know better. And the part that's really uh, kind of doesn't really, in normal thought, <laughs> doesn't commute, uh, compute is that uh, uh, patience uh, and joy. Uh, they don't normally work together. Uh, there's something there. So God's got a lot of work to do on me. That's a fact. Uh, you know, if you can imagine yourself, you're on the freeway, right? And traffic is bumper to bumper. And, you know, you need to be someplace in 15 minutes. And it's obvious it's going to be two hours. There's usually not a lot, a whole lot of joy associated with that. But I guess what it's really saying is, is that you got to, you got, when you're in, I say, you know, God, what, what's going on here? What is it you want me to be thinking about right now rather than uh, where I need to be? So, so anyway. So this next part, he says in verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. So the fact that there is inheritance, okay, that means like he's talking about us. Normally when you inherit something, you're inheriting from your dad, Right? So it kind of has an inference there that we're the children of God. Okay? And saints just means, uh, it's actually the same word they have for holy. And all it means is, is that you're set apart. 
And if you think about it, maybe you're starting to feel that way after you heard the Supreme Court ruling that, you know, the saints are like over here. They're set apart because that's what it means. A holy, holy God. He's set apart from the creation, right? Holy saints over there. And then everything else is over here. So uh, let's read the next verse, 13. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of his son of his love. So when you read that, if you read them two together, giving thanks to, uh, to the Father who has qualified us as partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of his Son of love. So when you first read that, there's a tendency, okay, we got lightness, we got light over here, and we got darkness here. And so, yeah, there's this contrast between light and dark. But if you look at verse 13, because, I mean, this, this is what I did when I first read it. When you read first, first, verse 13, if you read every word, he says, he has delivered us from the power of darkness, okay? Which is, you know, different than some sort of a physical dark light metaphor here. Now he's getting down to the nitty-gritty, okay? It's the power of darkness that we've been delivered from. So we don't have to... Uh, come under the control of evil because Jesus has delivered us from that, okay? So, verse 14, he says, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. So I want to talk just a little bit about redemption. I, I, I got a story I'm going to read to you. It's about a little boy who built the sailboat. Everybody likes the little boys, right? So... You may have heard it even, actually. So it says, a little boy built a sailboat. He, he, built, uh, he built the sail and had it all fixed up, tarred and painted. He took it to the lake and pushed it in, hoping it would sail. Sure enough, a wisp of breeze filled the little sail, and it billowed and went rippling along the waves. Suddenly, before the little boy knew it, the, bo- the boat was out of his reach, even though he waded in fast and tried to grab it. As he watched it float away, he hoped maybe the breeze would shift and it would come sailing back to him. Instead, he watched it go farther and farther until it was gone. When he went home crying, his mother asked, What's wrong? Didn't it work? And he said, It worked too well. Sometime later, the little boy was downtown and he walked past the second-hand store. There in the window, he saw the boat. It was unmistakably his. So he went in and said to the proprietor, Hey, that's my boat. He walked to the window and picked it up and started to leave with it. And the owner of the shop said, Hey, wait a minute, Sonny. That's my boat. I bought it from someone. The boy said, No, that's my boat. I made it. See? And then he showed him the little scratches and marks where he'd hammered and filed. The man said, I'm sorry, Sonny, but if you want it, you have to buy it. The poor little guy didn't have any money, but he worked hard and saved his pennies. Finally, one day, he had enough money. He went in and bought the boat. As he he left the store holding the boat close to him, he was heard saying, You're my boat. You're twice my boat. First, you're my boat because I made you. And second, you're my boat because I bought you. So... The story illustrates how God thinks of you, okay? He thinks you're twice his. 
First, you're his because he made you. And second, you're his because he bought you on the cross. He paid the price to redeem you. So that's what, when they talk about redemption, that's what redemption is about. So when you read that, and we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. So that's what redemption is all about. So, in verses 15 through 18, uh, he's talking about, he really zeroes in on Jesus being God here. And that's what these verses are about. He says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So, first of all, you know, we're all made in the image of God. You can go into Genesis chapter 2 and you can, you can read about it. And it's really an important point just for us to know that we're made in the image of God. It explains a lot of things, actually. Uh, you know, with, uh, uh, they've done studies of kids that are in, not in a religious environment at all. But they have knowledge on their own that there is a creator, that there is a God. They know that. They just know that. They don't know how they know it. They're, they haven't been taught it. They know that. And if you've ever had kids, I got kids, I got grandkids, you never have to teach them. That's not fair. You don't have to teach them that, all right? I never sat my kids down and said, okay, now this is fair and this isn't fair. No, they just know that. And they'll make you aware of that when one of their siblings is getting over on them. That's because that's part of the justice of God that's baked into us, okay? So, but, so we're made in the image of God, but what he's saying here is, he's saying that Jesus is the image of God, which is different, okay? In other words, because here again, he's going back to the whole theological part of the thing. He's saying, you know what? Jesus is the image. Okay, that's called the definite article. It's like when you talk about Oh, yeah, there's a man here, there's a man there. But if you say, hey, he is the man. Okay, you're singling him out and saying he's unique amongst all these other men. He is the man. So what he's saying here is that Jesus is the image uh, of the invisible God. And Jesus said it to Philip, too. You know, Philip, if you see me, you've seen the Father. I mean, so there's nothing really new here. The second part of this, and where people would maybe misunderstand, is it says that he's the firstborn over all creation. Okay, well, if Jesus is God, then, you know, he was born, how could he be firstborn? Well, it's, uh, I get the word translates to firstborn. I mean, that's the best way to translate. But when you look it up, you know, fortunately for me, I have, uh, you know, a lot of computer stuff, and you can zing and bring up, you know, Greek meanings and stuff like that. It's pretty cool. And so what, what this really means is that he is, he's, in other words, firstborn in the essence that he's, he's uh, in priority in sovereignty over creation. You, we don't see that in the English, but we don't really need to see it because in the very next word, verse, it says, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. So if Jesus created everything, he, you know, he can't be part of the creation and be born. He can't be the first one born in the creation. So visible and invisible, 
whether thrones or, let me see here. So verse 16, it says, uh, For him by all things are created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things are created through him. The visible and invisible, uh, probably, there's a couple of different things here that it could refer to. Visible, actually, you know, the, everything that we can see that he created. The invisible probably refers, I think, for the longest time, it referred to the thrones or dominions, uh, principalities and powers. It's similar to like in Ephesians, Ephesians six twelve. it says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly realms. Kind of like what we're dealing with right now this last week, right? So that's the way Paul refers to these uh, spiritual uh, uh, entities. Uh, so in verse 17, trying to get us out of here in time. So In verse 17, he says, He is before all things, and in him all things consist. So, you know, prior to the past hundred years, that whole visible and invisible thing probably... Uh, applied to the, you know, the natural creation and the supernatural, the, you know, these principalities and powers. But I'd say within the last hundred years, because of this verse, it says, he is before all things and in him all things consist. Well, when you get down to the nuclear level, I don't want to go too deep with you here, but, you know, you got a, you have a, uh, what's it, the nucleus, and it has protons and neutrons in there. And they have no idea. I mean, they know how to split an atom, they know how to make a big bomb, but they have no idea how, what holds that thing together. So the scientists, in all their wisdom, they come up with this theory, well, there's nuclear glue. We don't really know how that works, but we'll just call it nuclear glue. You know, and so I'm okay with that. But it 17 tells us here what's holding that, that uh, proton, uh, the, 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 uh, the nucleus together. It says, he is before all things. Now, he created everything. And him, all things consist. So he holds everything together. So that would go right down to the atom level, which goes back to visible and invisible. You know, it's not beyond the realm that, that God would be able to put that in there and, and reveal it now. You know, it's like uh, the rain cycle. Like we know, scientifically, uh, we're drinking the same water that we had, you know, thousands of years ago. And... I looked this up. It, that was only a recent thing, like a 1500, you know, not that long ago that, oh, man, oh, we got this all figured out. There, this water comes from the clouds. It comes down and it evaporates and it goes back up. And, you know, oh, we're so smart. But if you go to Isaiah 55, Isaiah 55 just talks about it like, oh, duh, this is just the way it works, you know. And so, yeah, so the whole thing is, is you know, a lot of times we think we're so smart, but it's really... It's all right here in the Bible. So verse 18, it says, And he is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have, there's the word again, the preeminence. So preeminence just means the head of the line. Okay, but here he's saying the preeminence. So he's preeminent over everything. Okay, so that's the little section here where, where Paul is basically saying, hey, Jesus is God, okay? 
Remember, he's got these people that are trying to make it something different. So, God, I think we're going to make it. <clears throat> okay, in verse uh, 19 through 23, what this section is about is about reconciliation. So, it says in verse 19, For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. Yeah, it basically, it's the fullness there I got the underline because that's not really clear. But it, what's really there, and other translations would translate it, for it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness of God should dwell. And that's really what it's implying. That, so here again, he's going back to the thing that Jesus is God. Verse 20, though, he says, And by him, so verse 19, For it pleased God the Father that him all the fullness of the Godhead should dwell. Verse 20, And by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. So, so I want to talk about this, whole, this idea of reconciliation because he's talking about it here in verse 20. It's kind of a key thing in our uh, relationship with God, actually. So, there's a movie. I didn't know there was this movie. I found out last night. Uh, the movie, The Straight Story, is based on a true story and chronicles the pil- pilgrimage of a 73-year-old man to mend a broken relationship with his brother whom he hasn't spoken or seen in over 10 years. Alvin Strait lives in Lawrence, Iowa. You guys ever hear of this guy? It was actually a movie about it. It sounds like it might be a good one. So I'm going to read you a little synopsis of the movie. But it works well for reconciliation. Alvin lost his, lost his driver's license because of, of impaired vision. He's an old guy. Yeah. When a call comes indicating that Lyle, Alvin's estranged brother, has had a stroke, Alvin determines to find his way to visit his brother and make things right. They haven't talked in 10 years. I've got to go see my brother. His only solution is to hitch a makeshift trailer to his 1966 John Deere riding lawnmower and set out on a 500-mile trip that will take him in excess of six weeks, camping out in fields and backyards made available by hospitable people. He meets along the way. Alvin Strait slowly but surely makes his way toward his destination. After crossing the Mississippi River and entering into Wisconsin, Alvin camps out in a church cemetery. Um, the pastor of the adjoining church sees Alvin from his office, has pity on this homeless man, and uh, brings him a plate of hot meatloaf and mashed potatoes. A conversation ensues. I can't help but to notice your rather unlikely mode of transportation. <laughs> the pa- I kind of laugh at that because of The pastor says, I'm the writing more. Alvin makes mention of his brother who lives in the area. The pastor recalls having met a man by that name while making calls in the hospital, but admits that he didn't recall the man making mention of having a brother. Neither one of us has had a brother for quite some time, Alvin explained. Lyle and I grew up as close as brothers could be. We were raised in Moorhead, Minnesota, and we worked hard. Me and Lyle would make games out of our chores. He and I used to sleep out in the yard most every summer night. We talked to each other till we went to sleep. It made our trials seem smaller. Pretty much we talked to each other 
through growing up. The pastor asked, whatever happened between you two? And Alvin's eyes teared up as he explains this. The story is as old as Cain and Abel. Anger, vanity, mix that together with liquor, and you've got two brothers that haven't spoken in ten years. Alvin's manner and voice indicates the depth at which he was grieving the barrier that existed between him and Lyle. He adds, whatever was that made me and Lyle so mad, it doesn't matter anymore. I just want to make peace and sit with him and look up at the stars like we used to do. So like Alvin, many of us have someone that we deeply long to be reconciled. So that's kind of reconciliation on a human level. So in verse 21, it says, And you, who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. So... I just want to talk about this verse for a second here because reconciled is in this verse too. He says, you were, and you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by your wicked works. So um, if you're familiar with Romans chapter 3, there's a verse in there that says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Another way of saying that verse is, for all have sinned and fall short of God's glorious standard, okay? So what's what's going on here, and going back into verse 21, because that's exactly what he's talking about. He says, you are alienated enemies in your mind by your wicked works. Basically, what he's saying is is that, that, that you have God here who's perfect and holy, and then you have man here that, you know, we've all sinned and fall short of this standard. There's no way that we can make it. You know, it's kind of like Lyle, like going there to meet his brother. There's no way that we can have this uh, uh, communication or relationship with God. So we need to be reconciled. And so in the second part of the verse, it says, Yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. So for God's act of reconciliation, first, Christ redeemed us, right? He paid the penalty for us. He redeemed us so that in that same event, that now through Christ we can be reconciled with God. God can, uh, in his holy justice, can see us as righteous. I mean, that's just the way it works. Uh, It says, and then verse 23, it says, If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. So this verse 23, um, it says, if indeed you continue in the faith. So it's kind of like, in our way of understanding that, it could mean there's some sort of a condition attached with this reconciliation. But in the Greek language, here again, I got all the computer tools. I couldn't read Greek to save my life. But I do have the computer tools that will tell you 
that there are in the Greek language, Alexander the Great, he's the one that developed this language the New Testament was written in, and he did it to have the most precise written language ever so he could send letters to his generals and they know exactly what he was talking about. So on their if, they have three different ifs. I mean, we have if. I know whatever if means, it means in the context. But here in the context, if you are, it could mean something different. But here, it's a if of the first class condition. And that means that everything that comes after that is assumed to be true. Okay? And every time that I've read, and there's some verse that talks about salvation, and if is involved, for all the ones that... Uh, uh, all the ones that I've read, it's queer, my, my phone is ringing on my watch. Uh, for all the ones that, that I've read, and this if is involved, it's never been the conditional type of if. It's always been what we would, con- what I would say. I don't know why they don't translate it as since, because it's a done deal, okay? And so that's the case for this one here. So when you read that last one, he says, I would say, since indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you heard. It changes the whole meaning of that if you read that as sense, and that's really what it is. So, let's finish this up. Uh, So we talked about a few things. We talked about the knowledge of God's will, okay? And the, the knowledge there, what counts is that we know that will so that we can put it into action, so that we can walk a life worthy of the Lord. So that's the first thing. The second thing, which is, I think, really important that we understand that, uh, that God's grace provides us with the power to walk that life, to bring glory to God, okay? We have redemption from his, the blood, okay? We've been redeemed, we've been bought back, okay? The, the fourth thing, that Jesus is God, no doubt about it. The fifth thing, Jesus has reconciled us through his death on the cross, okay? So through all that. So, uh, let's pray. Father, uh, we just come to you and we thank you for Jesus. Uh, We thank you that he is God and we thank you for um, the grace that you provide us. We thank you for the redemption and his blood. And most of all, we thank you for the reconciliation that what he did on the cross that we could uh, have a relationship with you. And Father, I pray is that we go out in the week that this would be uh, something that uh, wouldn't be an academic exercise or something cool that we learned or anything like that, but that we would actually, uh, uh, by the power of your grace, uh, walk a life that would be uh, worthy of you. Let's pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.